Imagine if the floor was lava. It's a game lots of kids have played, uh, so much so that they've turned it into an obstacle course game show on TV. It's fun to play make-believe. My son loves this game. <laughs> However, when the things we could only imagine become a reality, we sometimes discover that there's nothing fun about it at all. Imagine if there was a fire burning beneath your feet, that the earth felt hot to the touch, that smoke was arising from the ground all around you, that even as we sit here, we could smell it burning. This is the reality in Centralia, Pennsylvania. Sixty years ago, in 1962, the town tried to set up a landfill in an abandoned coal strip mine. In doing so, they ended up catching all the garbage on fire, and it spread into the veins of coal underneath the town. The response of the officials came up short. At first, they only fought the visible flames at the landfill. Then when they realized they were dealing with a mine fire, they thought it couldn't be too large and ordered excavations insufficient to stop the fire. All the interventions thereafter failed. In 1981, a 12-year-old boy became curious when he saw smoke arising near a tree. When he went to look, the ground opened up underneath him, trying to suck him underground. He clung on to the root of that tree and was only saved in the nick of time by his 14-year-old cousin as the poisonous gases came pouring up from the ground. By the 90s, all hope of stopping the fire was lost and Almost all of the residents were forced to relocate. Centralia has lost its zip code and has become a ghost town. The experts say the fire could burn for 250 years. I first heard this story in a course that I just took this past spring in managing conflict in life and in the church. It's an apt illustration of how underestimating sin and just sitting on problems doesn't make them go away. If you try to ignore reality, it'll just punch you in the face. Last week, we learned from Jesus that we are to love every Christian disciple the way the Father loves them. When they wander, the love of the Father sends us to bring the lost sheep back to the flock. A question that remains to be answered is this. What does that look like? When, a, when we see a problem, how do we correctly address it? As we'll see in today's text, Jesus is no mere idealist. He gives his disciples guidance 
and what is needed to do when sin emerges in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We're going to be picking up this morning in chapter 18 of the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be starting in verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. There the disciple Matthew records Jesus saying, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two, three, one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So Jesus' prescription to the question of what do we do when someone wanders away is this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Not your pastor, not someone else, you. You go point out their fault. Now, I'll admit that there can be rare exceptions to that rule, or maybe it would be good to have a pastor go on your behalf, but the rare exceptions don't nullify Jesus' regular instruction for us here. Now, I don't know about you, but... I don't think any of us really wants to do this. As soon as we read that, that you're supposed to go point out someone else's fault, alarm bells start going off in our heads. That's so not chill to go and do that. And on the flip side, we ourselves don't really want to hear any kind of constructive criticism from somebody. How many of us really want someone coming to say, I saw you do this, and I think you got to think about that. Now, none of us really like to receive that, and none of us really want to do that. But Jesus isn't even introducing something new here. We see a precedent given in Leviticus 19.17, where God instructs the people, saying, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. So, as far as the matter of guilt goes, we shouldn't tell others about their fault because their guilt is consequential. But what's more, we actually have a share in their guilt if we do not go to them and confront them about what they're doing. And if we fail to say anything, if we just overlook everything, what we're essentially saying is uh, that none of this really matters. It doesn't really matter what you, what you do or say. It's all right. Now, I think often we excuse ourselves from this duty that Jesus places before us to go and speak to our brother or sister if they've done something wrong by looking to the worst examples possible of this. And probably the worst example 
that you could possibly imagine would be someone, perhaps after this service, going up to you and saying, Bob, I heard you talking to Jim earlier, and I heard you lie to him. What were you thinking? You know, and, and everyone's <laughs> within earshot. And <laughs> or maybe you've been needled by criticism before, and, and especially in, maybe in a somewhat public setting. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, you're, you're to go and point out the fault, but just between the two of you. And I think that instruction there carries with it a whole lot of other implications. Not only is it just saying, okay, find a, t- a private time to go and speak with this person, but it's also indicating that you're not supposed to go gossiping about what this other person is doing. You're just supposed to go to them. You're supposed to go to them with a spirit of genuine care and concern. You're not supposed to make sport of their sin in your conversations. Paul instructs Christians in how they should approach one another in Colossians 3, 12-14. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, Paul's instructions here tell us the way in which we should approach each other. That's not easy either. It's not always easy to approach people humbly, gently, patiently. In fact, so often we let things just build up, build up, build up until they just kind of pour out in anger on somebody. And then you've really messed things up. Now on the flip side again, putting yourself in the position of somebody who is receiving kind of this care and concern of another brother or sister who who believes they've seen something that you might want to look at. From that position, we also have to try to assume the best in the other person. To not be defensive. It's very easy for us to get defensive and to rush to the conclusions. We always want to find the motive. It's like they're always just trying to knock me down or something. Could it be true? Yeah, could be true. But listen to the content of what they're saying. Is what they're saying true? Don't get so wrapped up in the motive first. From either side of the equation, whether you're the one who's going or the one who's receiving this constructive criticism, we need to fend off anger from taking hold in our hearts. James, the brother of Jesus, in his book, James 1, verses 19 through 20, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 
Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I don't know about you, but it's very tempting to grab onto anger in belief that you have a righteous cause. And what James is saying here is that anger doesn't produce righteousness. Anger gets in the way of you receiving words of correction that you need to receive. And when you approach someone with anger to offer a word of correction, when you come at them angrily, they can't hear you because all they're seeing is the anger. They do not see your love or concern. Now, we shouldn't confuse truth and anger. Because sometimes people feel like whenever you just go to someone and speak the truth, that that's an angry thing to do. Well, no. Because if that was the case, our Lord would not instruct us to do this. In, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verse 3, he instructs his disciples, he says, So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Now Jesus' words there in Luke tie in with what he's saying here in Matthew 18 as far as the ultimate purpose is. The ultimate purpose is to bring the person to to repentance. It's to restore them. Jesus says here in Matthew 18, he says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. Great. You can celebrate. You don't have to go and do the rest of the steps. What's also great is you just kept it between the two of you. You didn't have to make this big rumor or festivity of gossip. Instead, you've just settled things. Now, as we try to think about how could we make that possible in our own church here, I think we have to think about how we can put ourselves in a position to have success in having those kind of conversations, to have success in growing together. And the way that looks like is by building relationships with each other. You need to get involved in small groups. You need to be involved in covenant groups. Our conversations become easier when we're talking with someone that we know and trust. When we're in a circle of trust, we know that if someone is pointing out something in our lives that they don't have ill intent, that they desire what's best for us. And we need to put ourselves in that position because it's only really when we open our lives to someone else that some of those areas that we need work on might come to the surface. When you come here on service, we all put on our best Sunday face and we're only here for like an hour, hour and a half, and then we're out. Tough to see kind of our, our, the bad spots in our life. But when we start sharing life together, those things become more apparent. We should want those things to be able to be seen because our desire should be to grow As Christians, we should desire to be more like Christ. 
We can't do that if we just separate ourselves from others. By avoiding relationship, we're avoiding personal growth. Because if we keep others at arm's length, we're basically doing all that we can to make sure no one could ever see any faults in me. I just get to keep that perfect Sunday image. And at heart, what that really is, is a denial of the gospel. That we're all sinners who need grace. Who need to see that grace applied in our lives daily so that we'll become more and more like Christ. It's a denial of the reality that all of us, whether you're 10 years old or you're 90 years old, all of us need to grow in righteousness. So, what if the person doesn't listen, though? Well, this is what Jesus has to say. Verse 16 says, Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, again, this is coming, this has a precedent in the Old Testament. And it's referring to the command given in Deuteronomy 19.15, which the people are instructed that one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they they have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. We, tell, we see Paul apply this um, principle in his instructions to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 5.19, he says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Now, in these verses here, Jesus' use of witness isn't intended to indicate someone who has witnessed the act of the sin, but rather those who are witnesses of the truth of Scripture. We see Jesus use use this idea of witnesses in, in the very same way in the Gospel of John, in John 8, 17. Well, starting in verse 12, to make Verse 17 makes sense. Jesus makes this claim. He says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Pretty strong claim. And then down in verse 17, he says, In your own law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. And then he goes on to identify the two witnesses as himself and the Father. So the Father and the Son are the witnesses of this truth that Jesus is the light of the world. So the point that Jesus is making here in in terms of instructing his disciples to bring one or two others to act as witnesses in confronting this person is that they're to help the person see that they're doing something wrong or they've done something wrong. It's in order to overcome the tendency for maybe that person to say, oh, that's just so-and-so. They're just so uptight. Well, when you add a couple other voices into the conversation, what it tells them is, no, it's not just because so-and-so is so uptight. There's something actually wrong here. Now, even when three people go to a person, they might still resist and say, 
You're all crazy. I haven't done anything wrong. So what happens then? Well, if they still don't repent, Jesus says in verse 17 that you're to tell it to the church. Now this is interesting because we know that at this point, the church hasn't come into official existence. The church is, comes into official existence on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples, they go forth. But it's anticipating the visible church insofar as the instructions that Jesus is giving us to these disciples who will make up that church. And you can use the word church because it's just simply the word ekklesia in the Greek, which just simply means gathering assembly. So Jesus is talking to his gathering, his assembly of disciples. And so his instructions to, him, to them here can be just as applied then as it can be today, even though at that point there wasn't the visible formal church. Now, why would this be the concern of the church? Why would this be a concern of the disciples? The reason why the church would have anything to do with this individual's wandering is because as a disciple, this individual is a member who is one who is part of a called-out whole. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5, Peter reminds us of the nature of the church. He says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has gathered us all together as individual disciples, to be one collective whole as members of his body, like spiritual stones built up as a temple unto God. So when one of those, when one of those stones falls out of joint, it makes a difference. It affects the integrity of, that, of the structure. It affects the whole purpose for, for which we've been gathered together. Because sin and spiritual sacrifices don't go together. Christ has made us members of his body in order to take sin head on. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. We're not supposed to stay as we are. We're supposed to be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So we're going from immaturity to maturity, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's our goal, to reach the fullness of Christ. God welcomes us as we are in Jesus Christ because if, if, if it depended upon us getting our act together before we could come to God, we'd never get there. 
but because of Jesus Christ, we're covered by his righteousness and grace, and so we're brought in as we are. But he does not leave us how he found us. We cannot be content remaining immature. We've come here to be built up. The purpose of the church in Jesus Christ is to restore us to our end. We were created as God's image bearers. We were created to reflect God's own character in our lives. So what the church is trying to do here, like the two or three witnesses, is to convince this person to repentance. And if they will not repent, if they will not turn from their sin, and Jesus says in verse 17 that we're to treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now that seems a little bit funny because we know that Jesus has spent time with tax collectors, even with pagans. So what is Jesus doing here? What he's doing is He's drawing on a popular attitude among the Jews towards pagans and tax collectors to indicate how their relationship would change, should change with a brother or sister who's just absolutely unrepentant, who's absolutely rebellious. And the best way I could imagine to, to try to put it kind of in modern terms is it'd be like Jesus telling us that you're to treat them like they're a Nazi. Now, would Jesus have a conversation with someone who is a Nazi? Yeah, he would. Because he wants everyone to repent from sin. To be saved. We've seen how he's, he's reached those who are absolute sinners. But until someone stops being a neo-Nazi our relationship with that person would be strained. It'd be kind of an arm's length sort of relationship because we don't condone or support that. And that's the same idea here. In Titus 3.10, we see this Matthew 18 pattern. There, it says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. In Romans 16, the same is indicated. In fact, with concern that this person's kind of acting as a bad apple and may have an influence on others. Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. We even see how this extends to not just issues of morality, but to issues of doctrine. In 2 John 1.10, John tells us, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, and this teaching is that Jesus has come in the flesh, that God became man, do not take them into your house or welcome them. So, seems pretty clear If someone's unrepentant of sin, if they are spouting falsehoods and won't return to the truth, we're to have nothing to do with them. But is that it? Or is there something more? There's something more. We see how the purpose is revealed. 
In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 through 5, Paul tells us what the purpose is. He says, So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man, who is being disciplined by the church in this context, over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now that sounds bad. Then he says this, So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Even when it comes to the point where this person isn't repenting and you have to kind of break off the relationship, the purpose of breaking off the relationship isn't to damn them. The purpose is so that they might be restored, so that they might be saved. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 through 15, Paul says again, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So the purpose is in order to stir up a good form of shame. Now, a lot of us kind of eschew shame. It's like no one should feel ashamed. Well, that's not true. There's some things that people should be shamed about. You should be shamed if you're stealing, if you're abusing others, if, if you're doing anything like that. You should be ashamed. And if you shame someone for doing that, you're doing a good thing, insofar as your purpose is to get them to stop it, to get them to turn from their ways and start doing what's right. And Paul makes this clear. We're not treating this person as though they're an enemy. We're supposed to warn them as we would a fellow believer. So everything that Jesus says here in Matthew 18 has acted as a guide to our church's approach to discipline. If you look in your bylaws, and I printed out some copies, I forgot to hand them out, but I can hand them to you. You can see how it's completely informed our way of um, discipline here in the church. And in keeping with Jesus' purpose and the purpose expressed in Paul's letters to the early churches, our purpose is and must always be restorative. Individually, each of us has a responsibility to keep each other accountable. Collectively, as the church, God gives us authority with that responsibility. Because perhaps you're wondering to yourself, would a person stubbornly persistent in their sin really care what Rockland Community Church thinks? You know, I've, I've wondered that myself, too. Because after all, these days, someone could just leave our church and stroll into another. It can look like the church has wheelbarrow loads of responsibility and only a teacup of authority. But appearances are deceiving. Hear what Jesus has to say concluding in verses 18 through 20. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. 
Now, if this sounds a little familiar to you, you're not going crazy because a couple chapters before, Jesus says basically the same thing to Peter when he confesses that he is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. In Matthew 16, 19, he says, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus there in Matthew 16 is speaking to Peter. That's the you there, which in the Greek is soy. It's singular. But here in Matthew 18, 18, the you is plural. It's umen. So it's like Jesus is saying y'all. So if you went back to the beginning, it'd be like, truly I tell y'all, whatever y'all bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It'd be kind of interesting if Jesus was Southern. <laughs> um, now, why, why is this significant? Why am I kind of pointing out the the language here. The reason is, is because it indicates that this authority was not exclusive to Peter. This is the whole foundation of the Catholic Church, that the Pope has the supreme authority because it was given to, to Peter, above all. Um, but the very same thing that was said to Peter is said here to all, this, all the disciples. And we know that Jesus' audience here isn't just merely the 12 disciples. It probably, it's including a larger group of disciples beyond them. So this authority belongs to all the disciples to bind and to loose, which is just language indicating to judge what is true and right. And Jesus says that whatever you judge to be true and right here on earth is going to be judged accordingly in heaven. So the earthly corresponds with the heavenly. Now, this doesn't mean that the disciples can just make up any judgment that they want on anything. What's assumed here is that they're seeking to, li- to align with God's will in evaluating any matter. That they're praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're supposed to be following Jesus' lead. Jesus says in John 12, 26, Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servants also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So, lest you just, lest someone think that's just your opinion, when the church makes a judgment, Jesus says, not at all. The opinion, the judgment of the church is binding. The judgment of the church is God's judgment. Now, can the church make bad judgments? Of course. There's lots of churches who have made bad judgments. But the, question, the important question is, is, how do we know that it's bad? We can know a, a judgment of the church is bad as if it can be shown that it doesn't align with Christ's teaching. Whether in preaching or in judging, the authority does not come from the human beings that we are, but from the Word of God, which is the foundation of both of them. And Jesus continues and says that if two agree that anything would be done, that it will be done by the Father. And this lines up, again, with something that was earlier said in Matthew 7, 7, which where Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And again, it's not that 
two are agreeing, okay, God wants to give us a Corvette. <laughs> um, it's this idea that they're seeking God's will. They're asking with this purpose in mind of being synchronized with God's will. And sometimes we need to pray along those lines that God would help us, help us know how to pray. You can pray. Help me to pray what you would will, Father. Now, there's another key detail here that Jesus mentions in verse 20. He says, For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So just previously in, in John, Jesus had said that where he is, you'll find his disciples, kind of indicating that that's where the true disciples are, wherever Jesus is. But now Jesus is saying another promise here, that where the disciples are, Jesus is present. And I don't think it's any coincidence that when we look at a lot of the resurrection appearances in the Gospels, Jesus usually shows up where there's multiple disciples present. The only exception to that would be his encounter with Mary in the garden. But outside of that, it's always with two or more disciples. So there's some, a wonderful truth that Jesus is reminding us of here, which is that Jesus is here with us this morning. Jesus is present in the room. And there's no expiration date on this promise, as though this only applied to the early disciples. Because at, by the time we get to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus promises his disciples, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So if Christ is with us, the responsibility of bringing back straying brothers and sisters will not be too large for us. Because when we approach this responsibility, we go with his authority. We only speak the truth, which corresponds with the word and will of the Father. It's only from him that our word gains the weight of heavenly decree. So what does this mean? It means that our church should be no centralia. We should not let any fire burn beneath our feet. When sin emerges, we should address it personally, keeping it as private as possible, with concern that comes from a place of sincere love for our brother or sister. Every action... Every intervention must be inspired by the love of the Father. Because our goal is restoration, not condemnation. Even when we must collectively break fellowship with someone, we do this in hopes of restoring true fellowship, bringing our straying brother or sister back to the way of following Jesus. It means saying in so many words, I love you, and I'm glad to see you. Have you begun to repent of your sin? Failure to do this has consequences for all involved. The sinner is deceived, thinking they are in right relation to Christ even while they persistently live in disobedience. Those brothers and sisters who do nothing in response take on the guilt of failing to act, of neglecting their responsibilities of hating their fellow disciple because they love their comfort more. 
By this bad example, others are led into disobedience. The way of Christ is obscured and poisoned with the noxious fumes of sin. The church is not found where Jesus is, and Jesus is not found in the church. Jesus' instructions here aren't easy, but they are good, and they are what is best. So proactively, the best thing that we can do is to nurture a positive culture of discipleship in our church. A community where we are actively building each other up to be followers of Jesus. A community where our shared trust creates room for loving words of concern and correction. That means we need to share our lives with each other. We need to be together at cookouts. We need to be in small groups. We need to be in the classroom and in the coffee shop together. Because all in all, we need each other. We've been brought together to help each other along the way. Let us pray. Father, this is our prayer that we would glorify you in our lives, that our church would glorify you in the way in which we follow faithfully after Christ. God, we confess that every single one of us has areas in which we need to grow, and that any one of us might have a spot in our lives that might welcome one of our brothers or sisters to come and point out an area that we need to work on. Father, I pray, we pray that you would help us to have the humility to receive that loving word of correction. Father, for those of us who go to point out this fault in our brother and sister, help us to do it in the fullness of love, Father, so gently not gossiping, not sharing it with other people. Because our desire, Father, is not to bring someone down. It's to bring restoration. It's to build each other up. So, Father, give us the courage to speak. Give us the humility to receive. In all things, Father, let our life together bring praise and honor to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Lord bless you as you go forth this day. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we welcome Deacon John Lauder to the pulpit. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.